0: Amen. <clears throat> well, this morning we um, are actually arriving in a, a brand new series in the book of First uh, John, a very short letter written to the church. Um, but as uh, another way of introduction, I know a few people have trickled in um, uh, since we started. So I just want to reiterate that uh, it is such a blessing to be able to finally be able to deliver the word of God to us in a different role. Than what I've been able to uh, deliver it to and before, um, you know, again before just as a guest preacher, but now actually serving in a position of being able to deliver the word as as a, a consistent shepherd to you all, uh, not anymore at a distance, but now in person. And and what an exciting thing to realize that, um, though we've gone through so many changes and seasons of life together as a church and and I've only just begun to enter into it the last few months from a distance and now here in person, um, there's such encouragement um, that I see all about us as God is just obviously and so evidently at work, um, just growing us. And I've already had the chance to uh, meet up with nearly everybody in person and just be encouraged by you all. Um, You have shown such just tremendous hospitality to me and I couldn't thank you more for that. So it's such a privilege just as wave an introduction to, just be here and to kick things off with a brand new series at that. Um, Now the series itself, I've been entitling uh, Household Theology, a series for a continuing church. And I realize that's a mouthful of a series title if there ever was one, it's just loaded with all kinds of fun theological truisms, Um, but every single word was chosen so intentionally. And I'll explain a little bit here in a moment. but, but why you know, why the title? Why household theology, first of all? Well, when we are about to soon here read from the letter of 1 John, we're gonna see a, a form of familial or family-like language running throughout the entire book. We're gonna see it from chapters one through five. And even here in the very first chapter, we're about to see this here. And so uh, as such, the, the message of the book is very simple. It's essentially that we are the family of God That we ourselves, even here, Christ's Covenant, are the family of God, visibly here before every single one of our own watching eyes. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the message of First John in many ways points us to the very truth, the very fact that we are to have fellowship with the triune God, God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, who is himself conveyed here in family-like terms. And in response to that, we as God's children also then have this family-like fellowship. So fellowship with God, the Father, Son, Spirit, but also fellowship with one another. And that is what we are about to see here, especially in 1 John. Um, And as we experience this this communion with God through a right biblical understanding or theology of him, we will inevitably, as 1 John 1, 4 points out, uh, find our joy to be made complete. So in other words, when we understand this family language the way it's meant to be understood, our joy will be made complete. See, although we may be uh, small in number in this season of our church's life, I have been and I'm still entirely, utterly convinced um, that the Lord himself has united us through our own shared trials and tribulations and adversity of various kinds. I mean, the, fact, uh, the very fact, rather, that, that all of us are even gathered here in spite of the snowstorm, even last week's snowstorm is proof enough to me that God, as I mentioned earlier, is at hand, he is at work here in the life of our church. And so tagging onto that last uh, part of our sermon series title, you know, it's for a continuing church, uh, I want to encourage us that even though we have gone through different trials the last few years, um, God has continued to hold us fast and he will not give up on us. He will not give up on you. See, we are not a stagnant church, we are a continuing church. We are not at a loss, we are actually met with great gain. How are we met with great gain? It's because we have Christ, and all that is in him, and therefore we have everything. As simple as that sounds, it's, it's a truth that I want us to really just settle into, especially today, but even as the years and as time goes on, I want us to take heart in these truths. So I'd like to invite us at this time to go ahead and turn to the letter of 1 John toward the end of your your Bibles, your copy of God's word. And in 1 John 1, as we read through this, my prayer for us is that we would receive God's word with eyes of faith this very morning. For God has primarily disclosed himself to us in nothing less than this, his infallible, unchanging, inerrant word, always faithful, always true and especially in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, our savior. And so I'd invite you to receive and to believe the very word of God as it's read over you and given to you by God himself in love. First John 1, this is God's word, says this, starting in verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well friends, this is the very word of God. Uh, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the very word of Christ. Uh, With that in mind, let's go ahead and come before him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the very message that you are the word of life. You are life given to us. God, we thank you that as we have read your word, um, you have already begun to impress upon us the truth of it by your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, in this very time as now the word is preached and um, expounded upon for the sake of our application, our understanding of it, would you, by your very Holy Spirit, Use your inspired word to um, just attach itself to our hearts, to recognize your beauty and to see you for who you are. Father, I pray that I, myself, as the one who is delivering your word would simply get out of the way, but may you, Father, instead use this vessel, broken as I am even, um, to convey the marvelous mystery of the gospel of grace for the good of your people and your glory. And Father, I pray that as we start this new sermon series, going through a household theology, um, that you would instruct us and guard us and protect us all for the glory of your name. So we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our savior, amen. Uh, Well, church, I'm sure uh, many of you have already picked up on this by now, but I'm a huge fan of two point sermons. And uh, this won't be a surprise, but there are two points right here, just kind of staring me right in the face even. Verses one through four, you can probably see this in your own Bibles as well. A lot of your subtitles might say the word of life and walking in the light. Uh, if you have the ESV for instance, but verses one through four have this uh, real emphasis on uh, receiving Christ in particular, receiving Christ, which will be our first point for this morning. And verses five through 10 really focus on believing Christ. Or as the text says, walking in the light. Believing actually entails walking. It's a very active thing. And so we see these two aspects and they correlate so well together because uh, there is both this enjoyment of the fellowship of God that we see um, that is to be had as we receive Christ as our savior and enjoy then walking with him in faith-filled obedience. Yet for as encouraging as this passage is, as I was just reading it a moment ago, You probably also picked up on not just the encouragement to believers, but also a word of exhortation and and really a a sense of uh, a sober warning to those who would masquerade as believers, those who would masquerade as Christians without actually walking in the truth, those who would claim Christ and yet who did not want to have anything to do with him, who would continue walking in sin well, we'll unpack what that means a little later on, but in the meantime, I want us to actually unpack this idea of this dual-edged encouragement of, uh, uh, to the believers, but also this exposition of hypocrisy um, to those who claim Christ on their own terms. Um, but before we dive in, in a more kind of exegetical way, pulling out from the text, the meat of the text, uh, I wanna specifically focus on the actual context of 1 John itself, the context, you know, what was going on? And in order to unpack this, I want us to focus on three major aspects of the actual text itself. Uh, Namely, the authorship of 1 John, uh, also the occasion uh, in which John himself was writing, uh, assuming that it was John who wrote it. And then uh, also the third place, the intention behind the book, the intention. Now, um, I've learned in uh, spending time with a lot of you that uh, a lot of us here are lovers of history, especially even church history. Uh, And I myself, as I'm uh, about to finish up my uh, last postgraduate course um, at Westminster in the area of historical and theological studies, I myself am a huge just history nerd, and I'll be the first one to admit that, that I'm a huge history nerd. Um, And so I love studying the early church fathers, especially Reformation time and Scottish Presbyterianism and all kinds of things, and I just love it. Um, But one thing that's really encouraging is you study church history, is, is that throughout the course of the church, for two millennia now, there has been near unanimity in regard to recognizing that John, the very disciple whom Jesus loved, is the one who wrote this letter. Even from the time of the early church, uh, those who were even discipled by John himself which is pretty good evidence right there, like Polycarp and even those who followed like Tertullian eventually and Ignatius and many others, they all completely 100% would quote first John and give John the apostle credit for writing it under the inspiration of the spirit. And so even from the very beginning of the church, it was known that John, the same John who spent time with Christ for years in his earthly ministry, who knew him, who was loved by him, is the same gospel writer who wrote this letter to the church. But what's interesting about um, this and, and the authorship behind this book, and the reason why we have to even ask the question in the first place, who wrote 1st John, is because if you look closely, uh, the name John is nowhere to be found right there, aside from the title in our English versions of the Bible. Anywhere else throughout the book, you won't even see his name pop up. And so how do we know it was him? Um, aside from church history, we might not be able to uncover that What's interesting, though, is that this was a very unconventional way for John to write. See, if you've read much of the New Testament, you'll know that Peter and Paul and even James, as they would address churches in very specific situations that were going on in the church in the first century AD, they would say, you know, something to the extent of, you know, Paul uh, you know, a bond servant of Christ, you know, grace and peace to you. They would have this formal address throughout the whole thing. You know, I'm writing to the churches here in Laodicea or here in whatever, and they would say exactly who they're writing to. But here you'll notice John just jumps right into the actual action. <laughs> he just jumps right into the actual message, as opposed to giving all the formalities and everything that kind of is like flowery language all around the actual message of this. And so, though John himself is seen as the author, we can't help but then wonder, well, what was the occasion? Like, why would he be so blunt? Well, if you think about this, and it makes sense, even just upon a, just in a, even an initial reading, um, it seems very obvious, and, and we've also known this from church history over the years, but it seems very obvious that the occasion for this writing was the very fact that there were many false teachers, false teachers that were there, uh, likely in what is now modern-day Turkey, Uh, then known as Asia Minor, who were preaching all kinds of heresies regarding Christ, saying that he wasn't really divine, or saying that, you know, you could go on sinning without actually, you know, following and trusting Christ. And so John saw the error of their ways, and he saw that people had actually begun to infiltrate the church. There in what may have very well likely, this is speculation, but very well likely may have been Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, uh, where John was known to be one of their pastors, uh, at least for a season. And so as he's writing them, he realized, man, there is this, this urgency behind it. Um, I have to write to them. I can't just, you know, even take my time in writing this letter to them. I have to be blunt and to the point and urgent in delivering this letter to them. And in many ways, that might be why First John is written the way it is, that there's no real introduction. He just jumps right into the action uh, because he realizes that the church was in danger they were in danger of embracing a horrible and even heretical theology concerning christ and therefore their faith would be shaken if they received what wasn't christ in lieu of christ well john also goes on then um moving now into kind of the intention behind first john and he says essentially you know he practically just says it you know, here's our purpose. It's right there in verse four, like I alluded to earlier, but he says, and if you look at this with me, he says, we are writing these things so that our joy, our shared joy, in other words, might be complete. I'm writing these things. We are writing these things. He and the other elders and the apostles and uh, uh, pastors, we are writing these things to you, compelling you that your joy may be complete. (laughs) See, John himself realized that um, something was at stake in terms of the joy of God's people. Something was at stake as there were false teachers uh, unpacking what was wrong, uh, um, what was wrongfully being conveyed to them by these false teachers. Uh, I mentioned earlier that this might've been the church of Ephesus. And so again, this is a little bit of speculation, but it reminds me immediately of uh, Paul's word of advice Very similarly speaking to the Ephesian elders there in the book of Acts, Acts 20 in particular. See, there in Acts, if you might recall, in chapter 20, uh, Paul essentially said that there would be people who would come among the body of Christ, who would speak twisted things and even seek to draw away the disciples after them. And so though the church had known the whole counsel of God and had been taught the gospel of grace, and Christ had been declared to them by Paul and others, uh, they were so easily given to the heresies that would have been brought in. And so no doubt, John also caught that same sense of urgency. He caught that urgency to write to them, again, that their joy may be complete. And yet it's interesting because style-wise, he wrote to them in such a way that it was both uh, polemic or argumentative, meant to actually develop an idea, but also in a very pastoral tone, a way that was logical and yet was very relatable. It was understandable. So now um, as we think through these things, that John had desired them to have their joy be complete in Christ, that he desired them to stay fixed in the truth, I think even before going deeper into our own passage ourselves, we have to realize That we ourselves, even here in our own culture, are in a very similar place as those recipients in the letter of 1 John. We ourselves in our culture are in a place not too unlike the church that John himself had in mind. We're presently living in a culture that has swiftly moved away from uh, modernism, this, this modern idea from the last few hundred years that truth can be known, it should be sought after, There is such thing as absolute truth. And we are now finding ourselves in this era, the last several years now, of what we might call postmodernism. You know, an era where relativism is now the rule of the land. Much like the book of Judges, where it seems like everybody is just doing whatever is pleasing and good in their own eyes. We live in an era right now where that is becoming the law of the land, almost. Or for those of you who might love philosophy as well. I know there's a few of us like that here. We've moved away from even, you know, the different uh, types of thinking that, uh, you know, might be defined as rationalism, that the reformation and the renaissance and the enlightenment brought about. And we've now come to a place of what we might call irrationalism, and rightfully so, irrationalism, relativism. It's as uh, an author that I was reading a few days ago said, We are in a time, and he wrote this about 60 or 70 years ago even, that he said we've moved into a time where truth has become a casualty. Truth has become a casualty. So, what's taken its place? I mean, in the place of common sense, in the place of reasonable articulation of truisms and doctrinal distinction in matters of religion and discourse, we in our Western civilization have come to a place now in which, honestly, the gods known as unity or equality uh, are being sacrificed unto by our culture. People are giving their lives for what they seem, what they deem to be noble causes, um, but they end up sacrificing their livelihood unto those things. Of course, it's a, a big sermon for another time down the road, but I think it's important that we bring that up in light of the context here in our own culture. See, it's in the perceived name of love that False prophets and teachers of our own day, those who would claim to be Christians even, are preaching falsities. And the masses, even in broader evangelicalism, have begun to deny such core elements of the Christian faith. And so naturally, all of the major institutions that God has put in place, such as the family and the church and even government, have begun to unravel, even in recent years, in various ways. Because we have been undermined in many ways by irrational thought, irrationalism. Uh, Furthermore, in the broader evangelical church, and think, you know, those across the entire spectrum, I hate to say this, but we know it to be true, there have been fierce wolves who have come in uh, from among our own evangelical ranks who have promoted doctrinal indifference regarding God himself, Christ himself, They've denied the way, the truth, and the life, and so have led so many people astray. If only the Apostle Paul's inspired words in Galatians, uh, Galatians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, rather, verse 8 would be heeded, that as he says in Galatians 1 8, even if we or an angel from heaven were to preach to you a gospel that is contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. And yet, in our own generation, a growing number of nominal Christians have walked away from the true faith and have begun to just, in their own words, deconstruct Orthodox Christianity, tried and true historic Christianity, all in favor of proving their way to be the right way. They've sought a religion that suits their own tastes and desires rather than God's unchanging and sovereign will. So friends, this is a warning to us even ourselves before even diving into the book proper that I do not take an ounce of delight in any of this as I share it with you. And The sad reality is that all of us even as I've had conversations with so many of us already the last several weeks we've all experienced this in different ways. We're seeing, and it's sad to say this but it's true we're seeing a separation of the wheat and the chaff even within a lot of Christian circles. People who are walking away from Christ and disavowing him as Lord. And so it's for this very reason that when Derek and I were thinking months ago about what would be a wonderful sermon series to start us off with in this new season of our church's life, that I just wanted to go ahead and dive into 1 John because it addresses these things so clearly. It addresses a church that is surrounded by ravenous wolves seeking to belittle the flock And so uh, we have been given this imperative as believers here, even in this very age, that is not unlike the recipients of 1 John. This imperative for us to continue to uphold the word of life, Christ himself who is eternal, who never changes, and to cling to his old rugged cross against all the odds. Because these imperatives, this mission that he has put us on will never prove to be futile throughout the ages. It will not prove to be futile uh, down the road. It hasn't yet in the last 2000 years, and it will, not be, uh, it will not prove futile here in our own time in Culpeper. And so just as the church has always withstood resistance by sound doctrine, by healthy shepherding, by proper one anothering under the uh, counsel of God's word, and recognizing God's word for what it is and Christ for who he is, so we as the family of God here at Christ Covenant will continue to grow if our love for Christ stays firm. If our love for one another and our neighbors, when the gospel of Christ is at the center, stays at the center as we move forward. And in so doing, our communion with our triune God and with other believers in our community will only be fortified. That's the guarantee that 1 John delivers to us. In essence, our joy will be made complete at the end of the day. And so again, 1 John is all too relevant to us, each and every single one of us to this day, as the family of God. And so I'd love to invite you to hear again how John begins his letter in these first few verses. Uh, If you still have that pulled up, go ahead and look again at these first few verses, he says this, First John 1:1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, meaning known, known in the flesh, right before our eyes. In other words, as one of the apostles who had borne witness to Christ's deity and his humanity together, who saw firsthand Christ crucified and yet resurrected from the dead, who saw Christ ascended on high to the very right hand of God the Father Almighty, who was himself given the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. John himself, he could not refrain from proclaiming and continuing to proclaim, in spite of any opposition, the message himself, Christ faithfully. John, along with well over 500 plus others who bore witness in his own day to the resurrected Christ in the flesh, continued to affirm and continue to uh, verify the reliability of the gospel of grace. And so that's what he's doing here. He's saying, we have touched his hands that had the scars. We have felt them. We have seen him with our eyes. Believe us. Receive Christ, believe his message. And what was that message, friends? It's very simple. Even a child could understand it. The message is that Christ alone is, uh, in Christ alone, rather, is salvation from sin. Salvation is in Christ alone. And by his spirit alone, is redemption applied to those whom God the Father chose in Christ before the world's foundation as the uh, church there that he is writing to had already been taught. And Christ himself was made manifest to the world in order that those who see Christ and who receive him by faith might know him to be eternal life, that they would know him to be who he is, the author and the giver of life, Life life-giving communion with God, life that was not based upon our own merit, but rather God's merit, God's active work of obedience through Christ in our place not our own. And so John pled with the listening church that they would receive the word of Christ over and against the false antichrist plural message which challenged the doctrine of the word become flesh to save ruined sinners. See, for all the benefits of communion with God, um, all of these benefits were at stake if the gospel itself was not received and believed, actually lived out of. And so this brings us to our second half of this morning's passage, you know, verses 5 through 10. That the word of life must not be simply received, taken in as Savior, but also received, and this truth must be walked in. We must live out of the gospel. See, it's here that John continues to shower the church with doctrine regarding God himself. The message that Christ uh, taught his disciples and that is seen throughout the gospel accounts is that God is light. God is light. We saw that in the gospel of John and other places in scripture. God is light. And in him, as John goes on to say here, he says, in him is no darkness at all. In other words, God is perfectly holy, free from any stain of sin, and entirely separate from sinners. And so in that way, very unlike man that he should lie. And though this truth is also elementary, very simple and easy to understand, it is cause for great rejoicing because we do not have a God who is given to temptation. He can't change. What kind of God would he be if we came to him for forgiveness of sin and he felt like not forgiving us that day? You know, that is not true of his character. Rather, I love how the Westminster Larger Catechism puts this it says that we have a God, God who is a spirit who is in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful, and gracious. It just goes on, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. See, this truth, my friends, this truth is worth delighting in. For we cannot make any one of these things that I just read become untrue about God. Even when we sin, none of these things can become untrue of him in our relationship to him through Christ. See, even as his people who are freed from the shame and the guilt that our sin has wrought, we, by his grace, um, are in a place with that that covenantal relationship with him that we can never make god to be a liar again he cannot not forgive us if we are in christ when christ looks when god looks at us when god the father looks at us he sees christ and his perfection if you are in christ if you're a believer he looks at you and he sees his son standing over you pleading on your behalf speaking a better word over you And I love this because it reminds me of the truth of 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, that even if we are faithless, and we are, (laughs) surprise, he remains faithful. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And yet what was interesting is that here in this context of 1 John, the false teachers were trying to teach the people there in the church the exact opposite, they were essentially saying as, again, wolves masquerading as sheep, um, wearing shepherd's clothing, you know, wearing the sheep, the wool of the people, disguising themselves as false teachers within the early church of John's own day. Um, they sought, especially at least, maybe more, but at least three false claims that we see right here in 1 John 1 through 10. Three false claims regarding God himself, Namely, uh, these three claims that they claimed uh, that it was possible to have fellowship with God and yet still continue in darkness. Their second claim was that they claimed they were not sinners by nature. And thirdly, they claimed that they did not practice sinning in their daily walk. Essentially saying, oh, I'm above that. I'm not a sinner, nor have I ever even been a sinner. (laughs) That That was their heart position before God. They didn't really receive the gospel and so John called out each and every single one of these false teachers right there in these same three areas in verses six through ten and he did this through the use of again a polemic or a logical argument built upon the very nature of God as revealed in the totality of scripture and in the very person of Jesus the word who is made flesh and so, if you have 1 John pulled up, I would invite you to look again at verses um, 6 through 10, but especially at verse 7. Um, actually, let's go ahead and start in verse 6, rather. He says this uh, If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Well, what was John's counterpoint to this argument? Because that was, again, their first claim. What was his counterpoint? In verse 7, he follows it up and he says, no 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 if, if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sin so what about that false teacher's second claim that they were not sinners essentially even by birth that they were not sinners um well first john 1 8 answers that same question he says if we say we have no sin like you guys are saying we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us And yet here is his comfort that he gives not to those who don't claim Christ, but to those who claim Christ. He says this to them, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is to say that if we receive and believe and walk in the gospel of grace that Christ loved us sinners and gave himself for us, dying in our place and attributing to us all of his perfect merit and again active obedience of the law itself in our place we will be saved and we will so inherit his life on the basis of covenantal grace and grace alone and yet true believers again as i've been implying at this point they live and walk humbly before god they carry that posture of recognizing i am freed from sin but i still wrestle with it I've been freed from the power and the dominion of sin, but it's still presently all around me and even in my own heart. And so John even alludes to this very same fact here, this idea of the necessity of walking humbly before God. See, essentially it's not becoming of Christ followers to merely intellectually assent to an understanding of the gospel. It's not enough for us to say, oh, yeah, I believe that. Like, I understand it. I get the gospel. You know, Christ saves sinners. That's, that's great. We need to actually say, no, Christ saved me. <laughs> we really do need to internalize that. And when we internalize it, we can't help but then walk in light of that. I love how uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, even in his first John commentary, put this. It's a very long commentary, about 1,000 pages, uh, as I was joking with uh, Frank and Chris last night. Long commentary, maybe I'll read the whole thing eventually, but I was skimming through it a couple of days ago, and I love this phrase he uses in regard to this same passage. He says that true believers, true followers of Christ, must be in conscious possession of eternal life. We must recognize that. That we ourselves are sinners, and yet not, I mean, even in spite of us, we've been given the life of that Christ himself, his merit that he earned for us. We must, again, find ourselves daily in this place of sustenance, in the blessed truth that it is not we then who live, rather it is Christ who lives in us. We are united to Christ by faith and are made holy by his work of salvation. Again, not anything that we bring to God for satisfaction, for sin, but rather Christ alone. For as 1 John 1.10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, we essentially make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And so this brings us to a final point of application this morning. Beloved, think back to the very purpose of this letter that I touched upon earlier, found right there in verse 4, that our joy may be complete. Again, the purpose behind all the family talk, behind all of that that is going on, the light and darkness, all the contrast of these different things that John is talking about, at the very center is his purpose that our joy may be complete. Well, the question is then, okay, well, how do we then complete our joy? How do we complete our joy? It's actually a trick question (laughs) because we can't. (laughs) We ourselves cannot complete our joy. Um, Our joy must be complete in a humble reliance upon the gospel. See, joy itself is derivative. Joy is derived from God and God alone. It's a gift that is given to us in love, our joy. As scripture says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's what keeps us going. And we can't muster it up within ourselves. We will feel down here and there. Of course, we all know that. But we know that joy is something that is not inherent to us, but rather it's a gift that is given to us in our own Christian experience. And by that phrase, I just mean in our our walk with Christ. As we live out our Christian life, we will experience times when we are seemingly lacking joy. And it's not that we might even be wrestling with sin of different kinds, it's just we don't feel the joy that we need to feel. And other times we might feel overjoyed and we just are so uh, blissful in that moment. Um, So joy is a very mysterious thing. It seems to come and go. And yet again, John, like Paul and many others in scripture wrote, you know, we pray that your joy would be made complete. So again, it begs the question of, well, how does that happen? Uh, Well, the traditional reformed view of this uh, that John Calvin explained and so many others like him, um, it's actually one of my favorite quotes of John Calvin. John Calvin explains, how this joy is brought about. Again, it cannot be manufactured, but how is it brought about? Well, joy, he says, is a quiet gladness of heart as one contemplates the goodness of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. Again, joy is a gladness of heart as one contemplates the goodness of God's saving grace in Jesus. See, joy itself then must be produced by external factors, not internal factors inherent to us. When we think about being filled with joy, that very idea of being filled with joy, we realize it has to come from outside of ourselves. Joy must be poured into us, so to speak. We know it to be a feeling of power and of strength. When you feel joyful, you feel like you can just go off and do about anything, you know? Um, but it's something that is not um, just given to us once and then we're done. Okay, your joy is filled, you're good to go. Rather, joy must be given to us daily, daily. We must daily tend to the mercies of God and rest upon the gospel and in quiet gladness of our own souls, take delight in that. And from that communion with God, as one of my favorite authors, John Owen writes, from that communion with God, we will then experience the joy of God, his strength, not ours. It's only then in those moments when we have that confidence in our soul that that joy must come from him and not us that we can then say in accordance with 1 John 1, verse 7, that my fellowship, personally, my fellowship is um, with God, that is, um, is with Him. My fellowship is with God, the Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a confident kind of joy that is producing us when we have that humble reliance upon the gospel. Now, as a kind of a counterpoint to that, and these are a couple of just warnings for us as believers, there are a couple other extremes because that's not the only definition that some believers have regarding joy. It's not simply that they believe that and they're good. Many people, even in our own evangelical circles, have this sense of uh, trying to be either too passive in how they receive joy or too active rather than simply just acknowledging it and receiving it and reveling in it they might try to be passive or active. And to explain what I mean by that, you probably are familiar with the idea of the Quakers or even the Amish. Uh, I know the further north you go, the more and more things you'll begin to see. And, you know, I saw Amish furniture on the way driving up here this morning, for instance. And there's so many wonderful qualities about that people group. Uh, And yet one of the things regarding the Quakers themselves a few hundred years ago that they are also very well known for is that they, and the reason why they're even called Quakers is because they would sit in quiet and even like a nebulous kind of meditative state uh, in a very uh, passive way and and pray that God would speak to them in the silence and that he would move them and that they would hear his voice and they would be spurred to action. And while that sounds nice in some ways, there's also a lot of danger there. Um, This is the same way of thinking and this isn't to demonize them. They are our brothers and sisters. I'm not trying to go there, so please don't hear it that way. But this is the same kind of thinking that to this very day, uh, those who are charismatic or who are Pentecostal would espouse. They, they want to hear from God, and they mean well, but they often will try to put words into God's mouth, thus breaking the third commandment: that you shall't take the Lord your God's name in vain. They try to speak on behalf of God, many people in those circles. And it's a very passive way of, of looking at the Christian experience, of trying to experience the joy of the Lord. They'll sit and they'll try to take it in, and, and, and they think they're appropriate in trying to, you know, appropriate God's words into his mouth. But that's entirely not appropriate. Now, on the flip side, there's the other extreme that we also see in certain Christian circles, even here in America. And again, not to demonize anybody, I'm just saying that these, these are some warnings for us to take heed of so that we stay centered in the truth of scripture and don't fall into one or either of these two ditches here. Um, and this other side of the spectrum um, would be more of those who kind of come from the Wesleyan tradition or the Methodist tradition. And for as wonderful as those churches are in many ways, historically doing so much good as well, just as the others are uh, friends that I was mentioning earlier, um, out of this same group of, of believers, there was this active sense of trying to achieve the joy of God. And what I mean by that is that they would uh, put upon themselves, actively speaking, to take this action upon themselves to be about the Christian disciplines, to be very strict in how they would rule their own lives and how they would actually go about their communion with God. And almost in a very legalistic way in some circles. You know, if you didn't read X amount of times you know, you would put yourself down and you would feel depressed because you didn't meet your own standards, your own high standards. And so in many ways for them, they tried to actively experience the joy of God by doing and doing and doing and doing as much as they could. So whereas the one was more passive, you know, wait for God to speak, they were more active and they tried to seek joy through their action. Either way, though, you splice it. And again, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not putting them down, but the scriptures themselves tell us there's something else. Joy itself is not met in being overly active or passive. Rather, it is recognizing the goodness of God and reveling in it and then living out of that in a very natural way. And so as we um, meditate upon this truth of joy that is given to us as as a gift, it then frees us up to actually take delight in the gospel of which it speaks. And so as we contemplate the goodness of our Savior who loved us and who gave himself for us, it's in those ways that we begin to experience the joy and that that joy is made more and more and more complete. So as we conclude, uh, my prayer for us this morning is that that we would commune with our triune God on his terms, not ours that we might communion with God the Father, especially as we bask in his love, uh, love that chose us and sent his son to us. My prayer is that we might commune with his son, especially as we know the grace of God, grace that covers all of our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And I pray that we also might commune with the Holy Spirit himself, especially as we relish the comfort of redemption that has been applied to us. And so may we commune with our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and let his word, his word of life, take root in us. Uh, Let's come before him in prayer. Father, we recognize that we ourselves are um, empty-handed. We come before you in need of your sheer mercy and your grace. And what a freeing thing that is, Father, to realize that we don't have to work our way toward you or try to seek after something that is uh, maybe even a little mystical, perhaps, to hear from you. Rather, Father, we recognize that we are recipients of grace. We are people who um, are your chosen possession, who are your children, who are well-loved by you. And so, Father, as we now prepare for even this time of communion, where as we've been talking about uh, knowing you and and that our joy would be complete and hearing the word of warning from 1 John as well as the promise of comfort through this same passage, may we, O God, ourselves um, be met in such a way that is uh, proper through the preached word, through the giving of the sacrament of the bread and wine through our our own fellowship with each other, through our own uh, breaking of bread in our own homes and and fellowshipping and enjoying each other's company, in our own reading of the word during the week and our time of prayer as a people. Father, in these very ordinary ways, things that seem maybe a little too ordinary, maybe even a little boring, um, may we, learn from these things that these are the things that you use to make our joy complete. The very ordinary means of grace. So Father, as we prepare to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper together as the body of Christ, pray that you prepare our own hearts to receive it with gladness. For you, O Lord, are the one who gives it to us. So we pray all this in your holy name.